David Beeson, welcoming you to Chapter 90 of A History of England, where we're going to talk about the war that Britain got sucked into, just as it was at last beginning to gain the advantage in its long struggle with France. A war that was as unnecessary as it was avoidable. An exercise in pure futility. So, what war are we talking about? Well, it was the second and last, to date at least, between Britain and the United States. It was the War of 1812, a name that was entirely appropriate when the war started, though a lot less so when it ended in 1815. What caused it? That's a matter of debate right down to today. The ostensible reason was Britain's nasty habit, embodied in a string of decrees known as Orders in Council, of stopping neutral ships and searching them for what it deemed was contraband as part of the blockade of France and its subject territories. As a neutral itself, the United States deeply resented this practice. What made it still worse was that the British, desperately short of sailors to man a navy that had grown to unprecedented size, had opted for impressment, taking men by force from ports or, indeed, even American ships to serve in the Royal Navy. Many American sailors had been born British or maybe just sounded that way, and that could be enough to get them press-ganged. All this made free trade and seamen's rights a US war cry. Alongside maritime rights, the US may have been motivated by the desire to conquer the British possessions in Canada. That would have played into the expansionist mood in the US and knocked Britain off the American continent, where it was a permanent threat, especially in its collaboration with various Indian, i.e. Native American tribes, that were blocking westward expansion. However, many feel today, and felt back then, that US attacks on Canada were not really intended to take territory permanently, but just to force Britain to the negotiating table and get some concessions on the maritime rights business. Finally, there was a sense in which war served the interests of the ruling party in the US, the Republicans. That's no relation to the modern-day party by that name, which didn't even exist yet. Just to add to modern confusion, the full name of the party back then was Democratic Republicans. My own view, but feel free to reach your own, is that the maritime question was the main one which adds to the futility of the conflict. You may remember that British Prime Minister Spencer Percival was murdered on his way to the House of Commons to discuss the orders in council. They were repealed not long after. Unfortunately, by then the US had already declared war. The slowness of transatlantic communications meant that the Americans didn't learn in time that one of their major sources of grievance had already been removed. With the war underway, invading Canada was the only way the Americans could get at the British on land. So they invaded. Thomas Jefferson, the principal figure behind the drafting of the US Declaration of Independence, who had just stood down from the US presidency, reckoned that taking over Canada was just a matter of marching, as the citizens would flock to the Americans as liberators. That wasn't how it turned out. The Canadians, including French Canadians, fought hard alongside their British colonial masters. They even came up with a few legendary figures of their own, such as Laura Secord. 
She walked 20 miles on unfamiliar paths through dense woods to warn the British of an approaching American attack. Not to be outdone by the Americans, the British also invaded US territory. However, one of the interesting aspects of this war is that most battles were won by the defending side. People, it seems, fight best and are hardest to defeat when they're defending their homes. That's a lesson Vladimir Putin could usefully have learnt. The Americans and the British both gained territory from the other side. In addition, the US seized some land from Spain in what was then West Florida, today extending across the western part of Florida into Alabama. American ships also had some stunning naval victories over the British on the Great Lakes between the US and Canada. This was particularly striking given Britain's maritime power. And those winds were mirrored at sea. The Americans had some excellent sailors, as well as outstanding ships, many of them with better armaments than the Royal Navy. Such victories stopped, though, with the ending of the European War, when Britain could send out a far more powerful fleet. It blockaded the entire US coastline eventually, preventing the American Navy exercising much further impact on the war and causing terrible economic problems by reducing trade to a fraction of its peacetime level. At the end of the war, the US government was all but insolvent. If the regular Navy got bottled up, that didn't stop American privateers, pretty much state-licensed pirates, if you remember from earlier episodes, wreaking havoc on British shipping, which they did until the end of the war. Britain, at least in the form of England, had made a name for itself as a privateering nation back in Elizabethan times. Now it got a dose of its own medicine and didn't like it one bit. In what may have been a reaction to the failures of various invasions, both sides took to taking their frustrations out on the civilian population by burning enemy towns. The Americans burnt the Canadian town of York, out of which present-day Toronto later grew. They also burnt the town of Newark, driving the inhabitants out into the bitter cold of a winter's night, with just six hours' notice of the destruction of their homes. The British retaliated in kind, not just in the northern states near the Canadian border, but also in more far-flung raids that proved highly destructive, but with absolutely no strategic benefit whatever. Most famously, the British burnt Washington, though carefully excluding private property, but including the President's House, then called the Executive Mansion, which was later rebuilt and, after repainting, renamed the White House. Just as famously, the British failed to seize Baltimore. They bombarded the strong point of Fort McHenry, but it didn't fall. That was an object lesson never learnt by military commanders on how little could be achieved by shelling well-dug-in positions. Just think of World War I trenches. A witness to the attack on Fort McHenry, Francis Scott Key, felt prompted to pen a poem on his feelings on seeing, by the dawn's early light, what he and his compatriots hailed at the twilight's last gleaming, that is, the broad stripes and bright stars that they'd watched o'er the ramparts so gallantly streaming. The poem enjoyed such success throughout the US that it became the anthem of the US Navy and, in 1931, as the star-spangled banner of the whole country. So, 
When you hear the US anthem, remember that it commemorates a fine British military fiasco. And smile at the reference to the land of the free. At the time, that land contained over a million slaves. Baltimore was far from Britain's worst failure. The war made the careers of several Americans, but none so flamboyantly as that of future President Andrew Jackson of Tennessee. As a sideshow to the main fight against Britain, he won some major victories fighting the Creek Indians in southern Georgia. Many Creeks fought with him, but once he'd won, he grabbed a huge amount of their land for the US, chucking the Creeks off it, including those who'd fought alongside him. Then, when Britain decided to attack New Orleans, he was given command of the defence. He inflicted some 2,000 losses on the attacking forces, including 291 dead. His own were 70, of whom 13 were killed. You can imagine how this victory over... Wellington's Invincibles was greeted in the States. That battle offered another object lesson many armies failed to learn. Jackson's men were behind cover. The British were advancing across open ground. That approach would cost millions of soldiers their lives in the future, most notoriously in the First World War. Remember Wellington's trick of keeping his men on the reverse slope of hills, protecting them from the increasingly devastating firepower available to armies of the time? The British commander at New Orleans, Sir Edward Packenham, was Wellington's brother-in-law. He obviously hadn't learnt the lesson, and now never would, since he was one of the British soldiers killed there. The worst aspect of the Battle of New Orleans is that when it was fought on the 8th of January 1815, it was one of several meaningless engagements that took place after the final peace accord, the Treaty of Ghent, had already been signed by both countries. Again, it was the slowness of transatlantic communications that was to blame. Neither side knew the war was over and that the battle wouldn't change the details of the treaty. What did that treaty stipulate? Everyone would return to the pre-war position. Nothing was said about maritime rights, a bit of a dead letter once peace in Europe had made both the British blockade and impressment unnecessary. Any territory taken by either side from the other would be handed back. On the other hand, the US held on to the land it had taken from Spain. That made Spain one of the two losers of a war with no clear winner. Who was the other loser? Why, the Indian people. The British proved unable to honour their commitment to support Native American peoples after the war. Major organised Native American resistance to US acquisition of their lands ended with the War of 1812. In that respect, the US gained something from the war, Spain lost a little, and Native Americans lost their birthright. If neither Britain nor America gained much from the fighting, they both sustained losses. Casualties were about 15,000 for the Americans, 10,000 for the British and Canadians, and the same number for the Native Americans. Commercial losses were far worse, with the US in particular suffering economically. As it happens, neither side fully gave up doing business with the other. Even the blockading British fleet relied heavily on supplies brought out to the ships by enterprising Americans who made a roaring trade of it. The Brits, you see, paid in hard cash, while the American government was increasingly reliant on rapidly depreciating paper banknotes. That's just one example of trading with the enemy, which was often illegal. 
I love the story of Vermont farmers driving herds of cattle to the Canadian border where, to avoid falling foul of the law, they would stop. Canadians would then entice the animals across by offering them handfuls of corn. As the Federalists, the opposition to the Republican administration, kept pointing out, the war was unnecessary and should never have been fought. Instead, both countries should have kept developing the business opportunities both sides were keen on and made themselves more prosperous in the process. Sadly for the Federalists, being right, as so often in politics and in life generally, did them no good. Already in decline when the war broke out, they faded into insignificance in the years that followed it. The Republicans, seen as leaders in a war that had at least ended in a draw, enjoyed a virtual monopoly on power until they split over the election as president of none other than the hero of the Creek Wars and New Orleans, Andrew Jackson. The Canadian historian Pierre Berton commented on the Treaty of Ghent. It was as if no war had been fought, or to put it more bluntly, as if the war that was fought was fought for no good reason. For nothing has changed. Everything is as it was at the beginning, save for the graves of those who, it now appears, have fought for a trifle. Canadians and Americans would, he claimed, celebrate their victories, but, he goes on, without the gore, the stench, the disease, the terror, the conniving and the imbecilities that march with every army. The American historian David Hickey asks the question, who won the war? He answers, scholars are still debating this, but according to one interpretation, everyone was happy with the outcome. Americans were happy because they thought they had won. Canadians were happier because they knew they had won. And the British were happiest of all because they quickly forgot about the war. This assessment ignores the Indians, who were the biggest losers of the conflict, but otherwise it is not far off the mark. Hickey's point is a good one, and if the British forgot, it's because they had far bigger fish still to fry in Europe. The Americans, though the war had shown them to be far more militarily powerful than the old world might have imagined before, and had left them with an army and a navy on which they could build world-class forces later, were still small fry compared with the European great powers. The War of 1812 was never more than a sideshow for Britain. It needed to focus on the main show just a little longer, because it wasn't quite over. As we'll discover next time. Thanks for listening. Yeah.